Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. It's so great to be back speaking at Church at Home. Since the last time I spoke here, we've moved to a new house in Stockwell, hence the new backdrop. Haven't quite found the perfect spot to record from yet, which I guess is a very COVID-era problem to have, isn't it? Anyway, if you are joining us for the first time, or if you've missed a few Sundays because you have been out and about visiting friends and family, then we are a few weeks into a teaching series based in just one chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 12. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian community living and working in the heart of the Roman Empire. And he wrote it in part to impress upon them how even though they may be a culturally, socially, ethnically diverse group, they are united as one through their faith in Jesus. And the heart of Paul's exhortations and commands in Romans 12 is that the church community learn how to love like Jesus and to live as followers of his kingdom rather than the empire they find themselves in. This theme of the kingdom of Jesus versus the empires of the world runs throughout the New Testament. Now, at the start of the chapter, Paul is effectively warning all of us that empires have a way of squeezing and moulding us in such a way that we can end up being conformed to their way of doing things. Now, we can even come to see the values of empire as natural, inevitable, even good. And so Paul here is urging us that rather than just being passively acted upon, rather than the pressure that the empire exerts upon us, squeezing us into a certain shape, that we are to actively and intentionally work for our transformation into the kind of people, the kind of community that recognises and celebrates the values of the kingdom of Jesus as good and pleasing and perfect and lives accordingly. And the rest of Romans 12 is essentially Paul's take on what living accordingly looks like. It's a series of short exhortations outlining in very practical ways what a community shaped more by the values of Jesus's kingdom than the values of the world's empires will look like. And today we're going to spend our time together looking at the shortest of all those exhortations. It's just two words and we find it in the second half of verse 13. Practice hospitality. That's it. That's the tweet, as they say. Practice hospitality. Now, we may just have two words to work with this week, but there is a lot to unpack here. First of all, what does Paul mean when he says practice hospitality? Is his idea of hospitality the same as ours? And what does he mean by practice? Well, the dictionary defines someone who is hospitable as someone who is friendly and welcoming to visitors or guests. And if I ask you to think about someone you know who is very hospitable, I'm sure there are people who immediately spring to mind. They're the people who are probably at the centre of your friendship group, maybe the extroverts, they're people who get energy from being around others. They're the people who are always opening their homes and think nothing of cooking a sit-down meal for a dozen people. Love nothing more than planning an impromptu party. We all probably know those kinds of people. We all love those kinds of people. We're glad they are in our lives, even if we're an introvert and get a little exhausted being around them. But is that what Paul is talking about here? Is Paul saying, hey church, 
Jesus is calling you to practice being an extrovert. He's calling you to grow in the spiritual gift of event planning. He's calling you to learn how to cook for big groups and get comfortable hosting parties in your home. Is that what Paul is saying here? Well, not quite. It may include that for some of us, but Paul's hospitality is actually much deeper and wider than that. The word he uses here and the word that is used throughout the New Testament is a Greek compound word made up of two words, the word for brotherly love, and here's the important bit, the word for stranger, for stranger. For Paul to be hospitable means to welcome in the stranger, to welcome in someone who is outside of our social group and to make them feel at home by treating them as part of the family. So my little sister lives in Lewisham. Her place is like our second London home. And do you know what? When we're there, I don't ask her if I can make a cup of tea. I just put the kettle on and ask her if she wants one too. When it's time to make dinner, we all pitch in to help and then clear up together. If we ever need to borrow anything, we know the answer will most likely be yes. That's just the way it is with siblings. We're not guests at her place, we are family. And I think that way of living is a good goal to aim for with those in our church community too. Jax and I ran a kind of discipleship group at our place a few years ago. And as people arrived the first week, we did the hosting of taking everyone's coats and making sure everyone had a drink and introducing people to one another and all the rest of it. Then at the end of the evening, we said, this is where the mugs are. This is where the tea and coffee is. This is where the dishwasher is. Stack it however you like, we're really not precious. From now on, whenever you come to our place, not just for this group, but whenever, feel free to make yourself a drink and to offer to get someone else a drink too. If you are hungry, feel free to eat whatever you can find. If you need to borrow something, ask away. You are officially no longer guests here, you're family. Our place is your place. But for Paul, that's like the ground level baseline expectation of what it means to be in church community together. For Paul, the goal is not that we just treat one another like that, but that we are always on the lookout to invite other people in to that way of living too. And for Paul, hospitality, the love of the stranger, isn't just a nice add-on, it's not just something for the extroverts, it's something that we are all to intentionally and actively pursue. In most Bible translations of this verse, it reads, practice hospitality. But the Greek word used here is the same word used by Luke in the book of Acts to describe how the disciples were pursued or persecuted from city to city. It's the same word used elsewhere in Paul's letters when he says we are to pursue love, pursue peace, pursue righteousness. So it's stronger than just try and get good at this thing. Paul is telling the church to actively, intentionally pursue and run after loving the stranger as family. Paul is saying that it's down to us to take the initiative. It's down to us to keep a lookout for the people on the edges of our community and to pull them in. As author and speaker Joe Saxton says, when we see hospitality occur in the Bible, it is not an optional extra. Honestly, it's not really described as a gift. It's an instruction. For Paul, pursuing hospitality is such an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that being hospitable ranks right up there with being able to teach and being holy and disciplined in his list of requirements for church leaders. And I think that one of the reasons that hospitality is so important to Paul is because being on the receiving end of hospitality was such a big part of his early story. 
You can find the first part of Paul's story in Acts chapter 9. And as you may know, it begins with him trying to look up and even kill the followers of Jesus. But then he has this incredible encounter with the risen Jesus, his road to Damascus experience, which in a moment completely deconstructs everything he thought he knew and even leaves him physically blind. So Paul is led by the hand into Damascus. He holds up in a room for three days, not eating, not drinking, trying to make sense of what has happened to him. And first off, God sends him a disciple called Ananias to pray for him to receive his sight, to help him start to reconstruct his life, and very importantly, to help connect him into the church community there. As you can imagine, Ananias has some initial reservations about going to a guy who been trying to kill him and his friends. But God just says to Ananias, go. I've chosen this one. He's part of the family now. And so Ananias goes and he prays for him to receive his sight, which he does, and he introduces Paul to the whole community and they welcome him in as one of their own. And then when Paul travels to Jerusalem, the same thing happens again. Everyone is afraid of him, thinking this might just be some kind of trap. But then Barnabas, a key leader in the church, vouches for him and brings him right into the heart of their community. And they too welcome him in and treat him like family. So you see how Paul's early experience of the church was one of being on the receiving end of radical hospitality. He wasn't just a stranger, he was an enemy, and yet the church loved him as one of their own. This reminds me of a story of one of my friends. Uh, so my friend is quite active on Twitter, known to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, she's thoughtful, considered, uses the platform that she has to make a case for the reasonableness of having faith in Jesus and the value to society of faith communities. And a few years ago, she received a reply to a tweet that she had made from an atheist that she knew who took massive issue with it and decided to do his best to dismantle it and my friend 280 characters at a time. This person was aggressive, patronizing, just plain rude. He didn't just refute my friend's point, he attacked her personally. And in my friend's words, pushed all of her buttons and tapped into all of her insecurities. And her first reaction was to rain down a Twitter firestorm on them and prove to everyone why this person was wrong and stupid and they were right. And because that was her first reaction, she decided it might be best to come off Twitter for a few days to calm down. And in that time, she talked to her spouse. She prayed about what a Jesus-like response would be. And do you know what she chose to do? She got in touch with this person directly and invited them to dinner. She decided to respond to her Twitter nemesis with real life, in-person, radical hospitality. She decided to show brotherly love to this person who was very much on the outside of her community, decided to open her home and invest time and money in cooking good food and buying good wine. And so they sat down around a table and got to know one another over a shared meal. Yes, a thread of well-crafted Twitter responses may well have won the argument in the moment, but I don't care how well-crafted that Twitter response is. 280 faceless characters just don't have the power that Alantagene, good red wine and face-to-face -face conversation does. And one of the remarkable things for me about Paul's story is that a face-to-face -face encounter with the risen Jesus wasn't by itself enough for Paul. Paul also needed the gracious love of Jesus to be embodied through the radical welcome of his people. Paul didn't just need a revelation, didn't just need to have his thinking changed, didn't just need information told to him. He also needed to be embraced and loved by the family of God. 
And I think that is why when Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was here and inviting people into it, he didn't just spend his time teaching and performing miracles. He spent his time eating and drinking with people. In fact, it seems like he spent most of his time eating and drinking with people. In one point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is talking to the crowd about John the Baptist and who they thought that he was. And he says, you all know how John had this strong prophetic vibe and how he lived in the desert on a diet of locusts and honey and how because of that, the religious leader said, don't listen to that guy. He's, he's got a demon. And here I am eating and drinking and those very same people say, hey, don't listen to that guy. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think his main point was that haters going to hate. But this gives us an insight into how Jesus spent his time. As one commentator notes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And at every one of those meals, you find Jesus extending his hospitality to those considered to be on the outside of society. Which actually tells us something incredibly important about the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. That his kingdom is a kingdom that is open to all. In another scene in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus helps connect the dots between the practice of extending hospitality to all and the reality of God's kingdom. So in this scene, Jesus has been invited to a meal at the home of a very prominent Pharisee, one of the religious and cultural elite of the town. And this guy has invited all of his powerful and important friends to meet this new rabbi that everyone has been talking about. And during the evening, Jesus, is, Jesus notices how all of these very important guests were all jockeying for position, trying to prove their status by sitting in the best seats closest to the host. And then as they are eating, the conversation turns theological and someone mentions feasting in the kingdom of God. Now, one of the major biblical metaphors for the kingdom of God is a banquet. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Prophet Isaiah symbolises the, mess the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God to earth with this image of all the people on earth sitting down together with him for this most incredible feast. On this mountain, Isaiah writes in chapter 25, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, sorry vegetarians, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. In other words, everything that stops people seeing God for who he really is. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears on all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. So this is a metaphor for the coming kingdom of God. But by the time of Jesus, Isaiah's beautiful vision of the whole world coming together to feast at the Messiah's table had been drastically altered. Both the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures and use at the time and the Book of Enoch written around that time, well, they still have Gentiles, non-Jews at the banquet, but in both they are only there for God to wipe them out. In the Book of Enoch, the righteous Jews have to wade through the blood and guts of the smitten Gentiles to get to the table, which, yes, is a very different version to Isaiah's feast. Then an Israelite sect at the time, the Qumran community, was teaching that actually the Gentiles would be excluded from the feast altogether. And not only that, they also limited attendance at the banquet to any Israelite who had not only perfectly kept the law, but who was not smitten in his flesh, paralysed in his feet or hands, or lame or deaf or dumb. Had to be physically perfect as well. So that was the general feeling regarding the Messiah's banquet at the time of Jesus. And it gives us a good idea of what the Pharisees and religious leaders thought about who was in and out when it came to the kingdom of God. 
And so when Jesus is at this meal and he sees how the understanding of the Messiah's banquet is playing out in real life, how only the very elite of society are invited to their meals, how everyone is obsessed with their status and proving their religious credentials, he tells a parable. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. When the food was ready, the host sent his servant out into the village to tell those who had been invited to come and eat. But then, one by one, all the guests start to make their excuses as to why they can't actually come after all. So the host tells his servant to just go out into the village and invite anyone he can find to come in place of the original guests. Specifically, I love this, in a direct shot at the teaching of the Qumran, the master says to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And so the servant does this. He gathers up as many people as he can, brings them back, but there's still more room. So the master says, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel those you find there to come in so that my house will be full. The servant wants to go outside of the master's town to the strangers outside of his community. Understood throughout church history to be an analogy for the Gentiles, for us, and compel them to come and enjoy the party. Jesus is quite clearly teaching through this parable that the Pharisees had drastically misunderstood Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God because they had drastically misunderstood the gracious, inclusive, stranger-loving heart of God. Despite what the Pharisees may have thought, despite what they may have been taught, despite what they may have wanted to be true to make themselves feel superior to everyone else, Jesus says that the messianic banquet the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone. The only condition is that you actually respond to the invitation and you come and you feast. And so here's the important bit. Because Isaiah's vision of the Messianic banquet is true, because the kingdom of God really is an all-inclusive feast, just like Jesus, just like the early church, we are to live accordingly by pursuing hospitality by lovingly welcoming any and all to our table as a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God and as a visible, embodied expression of his incredible grace for all. Our table is supposed to look like his table. And not to labour the point, but when Jesus teaches in Matthew 25 that the world is divided into two groups of people, one group who lives by the values of his, his kingdom, the other that lives by the values of the world's empires, Guess what? According to Jesus, it's one of the key indicators that a person is living by the values of his kingdom. That's right, that when they see a stranger, they invite them in. Additionally, because Jesus so identifies with us, with humanity, because he is able to recognise the divine image in each and every one of us, he says here that whenever we welcome the stranger in, whenever we show hospitality to someone outside of our social group, we are actually showing hospitality to Jesus himself. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. In the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, James Martin tells the story of an old priest he knew who lived in a Jesuit college in Spain. It was his job to answer the main door to the college and he developed the habit of every time the doorbell rang of calling out, I'm coming, Lord, as he went to answer the door. Isn't that great? He wanted to remind himself to welcome each person who came to his door as if it was Jesus himself. And I mention this because, let's be honest, being hospitable can just be really hard sometimes. Often it's far from the easiest option. The Apostle Peter, writing to the early church, says to 
Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter is a realist. He knows that it just takes a lot more emotional energy, time and money to welcome people into our lives, to love strangers like family. He knows that being hospitable will involve sacrificing some of our personal space and time, that our food budget may have to go up, that we might have to be prepared for things in our home to get stained or broken, that we'll probably have to endure the occasional awkward silence or tense conversation, that at some point it's likely that someone may well take advantage of our hospitality. And because of that, it can be really easy to grumble as we do it. One of my favourite quotes about hospitality is that hospitality is making someone feel at home even when you wish they were. And so if we are going to do this, if we are going to pursue hospitality and intentionally work at becoming a community that welcomes in and loves one another and the, the stranger as family, it's important that as Paul says in the beginning of Romans 12, that we see the very practical, hands-on, hard work of hospitality as an act of worship and devotion to God. So the next time you're weighing up whether to answer that phone call or to invite that person over or have that person stay, the next time you're at a Sunday service and you're tempted to default to the safe option of a conversation with your friends rather than walking over to the person standing on their own, the next time you're sitting there wishing you'd said no instead of yes, that you'd never made the invitation in the first place. Why didn't you remind yourself that this person in front of you is made in the image of God and is loved by Jesus? And why not choose to show hospitality to them as a way of expressing your love for God? Now, there are obviously loads of different things we could do to become a little bit more hospitable this week. There are loads of next small steps we could take all the way from inviting someone to stop by for a cup of tea to considering using your spare room to house a refugee. And I'd really encourage you to spend some time this week thinking about this, praying about it, talking with your friends about how you together can become more hospitable in your community. But right now, we're going to finish by taking communion together. In Luke's account of that first communion, as they are sitting around a table that Jesus has prepared eating together, he says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I die. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What Jesus is doing here is linking the taking of communion, the eating of bread and the drinking of wine to the banquet that is to come when he returns to bring his kingdom in all its fullness. When we eat and drink, we not only remember his sacrifice for us, the cost that he paid in order to defeat sin and death, to defeat the power of the empires of the world. But by regularly coming together as one body to eat and drink together, we act out now what we will do together then. And that is why at Christchurch, everyone is invited to take part in communion. Jesus' invitation is to all and therefore so is ours. The food has been prepared. The wine has been poured. A place for you has been set. So come now. 
Come all who are thirsty. Come all who are hungry. Come and eat and be satisfied. Come and drink and be refreshed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and friend, we come today so grateful for your grace. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for defeating the powers of sin and death through your sacrificial love. Thank you for treating us as your friends rather than your enemies and for joining us together as your family. As we respond again to your invitation to eat and drink at your table, would you fill us again with your love and would you help our tables to look more like yours? Amen. Let's eat, drink, and worship God together again. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristchurchLondon.org.